Today, we're heading a little bit down the COVID-19 vaccine conspiracy rabbit hole. And we'll also talk about some new tech trends in healthcare. Plus, what do you think about prescribing a video game to treat ADHD? From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, thanks for coming on today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. In the second half of the program, I want to talk a little bit about tech trends in healthcare and how technology and IT will be could you know change the landscape of how we you know interact with doctors and how doctors may interact with patients? But first, Ron, I want to turn to um, down the 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 COVID nineteen vaccine conspiracy theory alley just for a little bit because uh, okay. I I published our uh, weekly e newsletter last week and and saw some interesting posts on Facebook regarding uh, one of the topics that I published and that's. Um, end plate about end plates. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services announced last week they had bought $290 million worth of uh, the drug end plate, which is produced by Amgen. Um, first, can you just give us a rundown of what end plate is um, and what it's made for? So, end plate is a drug that um, helps the body produce platelets. Um, and it's primarily for two things. One is acute radiation sickness. Um, that's, that's radiation sickness occurs when the body gets sort of a high dose of penetrating radiation. Um, that could be from radiation therapy as part of uh, cancer treatment, or it could be an accidental dose of acute radiation, you know, some radiation leak around a power plant or obviously mm -hmm. in a sort of a nuclear exchange. And it's also used for, um, uh, a syndrome that happens mostly in kids called immune uh, thyrocytopenia, um, and basically it's a it's a, a you know immune response or a genetic disease that makes the the child not produce platelets. And anytime you aren't producing platelets or don't have enough of them, whether it's from a radiation sickness or this you know what they call ITP, um, you can bleed uncontrollably, and and that can cause death. So what this drug does helps the body produce platelets. Um, it's a drug that's been around for a while. It's it's pretty effective at what it does. Um, and that's what the government decided to produce to buy, you know, $290 million, $90 million worth of, of that drug. What was interesting to me is when I, I first heard this on, on Glenn Beck's radio program last week, and he seemed to be in the camp that this means that the government knows something that we don't, and heavily implying that the U.S. is headed for all-out nuclear warfare, probably with Russia, uh, given with their conflict in the Ukraine, given President Biden's comments in recent weeks. Here's what Glenn Beck said on his program last Friday. The drug that the HHS says it just purchased was called N-Plate, and it's made by a company named Amgen. I'm looking into the company now. I'm trying to see if there's any other way to explain this other than um, they know something that we don't know. 
Now, this drug is used to treat acute ARS. That's acute radiation syndrome. It's used to treat blood cell injuries from severe radiation poisoning. So if you don't take the thyroid blocker stuff, you end up with acute radiation blood poisoning, I guess. So here's what's interesting. Until this press release, there is no evidence of any kind that our research team could find that health and human services have ever had anti-radiation poison medication just sitting around on hand. We don't carry a stockpile of this. I think that's a bit of a stretch because when I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe this is more of an aid uh, sort of thing that we're buying it in preparation for uh, sending it to some of the Eastern European countries in the event that there's some sort of uh, nuclear warfare. How far off the mark would I be that this might be used for aid? Oh, I, I think that it's much more likely that this is being purchased potentially to help countries in and around Ukraine for one of two reasons. It, it, the thought that an all-out nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, or Russia, I should say, um, that we would need this drug or this little of it, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, um, is sort of you know putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds. Um, first of all, if, if we were buying the drug as we thought we were going to get to an exchange with Russia, we'd need a lot more. Secondly, right. um, not producing platelets is or acute radiation sickness is going to be almost the least concerns in that kind of exchange. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about what's going on in Ukraine and you think about this stockpiling of this drug as potential aid, it's not a bad insurance policy because one of two things could happen. One, you could have, it's possible, a tactical exchange of nuclear weapons, you know, either intentional or by accident um, with Russia. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, what the intention was, but if somebody lights off a, you know, a, a five kiloton tactical weapon, there's going to be radiation sickness and the strike mm -hmm. would definitely help with that. The other is, let's not forget, there's a very large nuclear power plant that's in the middle of all this fighting mm -hmm. um, that could, you know, release radiation if it got hit pretty dramatically with some sort of artillery or, or uh, you know, conventional weapons. So there's a couple of different scenarios that we could see the release of radiation in and around the theater, you know, the combat theater of Ukraine. And obviously, this drug would be an important drug to have on hand. The other thing that's important to understand about this drug is this is not something that you give a week, 10 days, two months after exposure. For this to be really successful in sort of a large accidental radiation dose, um, you need to get within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So you would have to purchase it ahead of time, ship it to forward locations for it to be useful, which would, you know, make sense as a, you know, as a um, insurance policy for what if mm -hmm. something happened to the reactor or somebody released a tactical nuke. And I'm glad you mentioned the, the power plant there, the Saparicha power plant. The World Health Organization mm -hmm. has, has specifically warned about the fighting in that area and how it, how it could create a real public health disaster in, in Eastern Europe if something were to happen, um, possibly worse than the, the Chernobyl disaster back in the, the 80s. So this all is sane and makes sense. Well, if you could call war sane, but this this yeah. reasoning for buying this drug is sane and makes sense. I mentioned the COVID-19 vaccine conspiracy alley, which I, we're, we're going to turn down to now. And 
it's connected to this uh, press release by the HHS and this purchase of the drugs. And that is because there have been a few studies that have shown that some people get um, TTP, the, 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 uh, the disorder we were talking about that, that some children get after having a COVID-19 vaccine. And they're saying, aha, this is proof that the government knows the vaccines are not safe and they are now buying a bunch of this drug to treat it. And before I go into that, this is the thing that causes the blood cots from the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson Johnson vaccine. And of all of the 200 million people in the U.S. that have been vaccinated, there have been 12 cases of this. So I guess first reaction to, you know, whether or not the vaccines are safe because of these possible blood clots. And then secondly, how, I mean, Obviously, it's it's a bit of a stretch to say that the government's now buying a drug to treat the vaccine that they gave everyone in the first place. It's it's more than a bit of a stretch. I mean, it is, <laughs> you know, in my opinion, with all the data that's out there, completely ludicrous. Um, there have actually been some pretty decent studies of people that they knew had ITP, okay, mm-hmm. and got the vaccine where they actually checked their before and after platelet counts. Okay, these are people with the disorder, not sort of people that are perfectly fine platelet production. And one of the studies that I saw that tracked like 73 people with the situation, maybe it was more, a few more people than that, only 12% of the people with the syndrome actually had a reduction in their platelet count post-vaccine. That reduction was easily solved through a number of medications, medications similar to this. There are other things that corticosteroids, et cetera, that they can do. Mm-hmm. So even people with a fairly rare condition, they looked at it because they said, you know, we know this, these vaccines may create this problem with a precondition, pre-existing condition. Now, the, when you start to deal with the overall public, people who don't have this problem, and you start to deal with, like you say, 12 cases in the U.S., of this situation, Mm -hmm. you start to run into the question, which is hard for some people to understand, which is, um, well, what would be the incident of somebody developing this problem even without the vaccine? And how does that compare to this sort of post-vaccine? And you're looking for one of those things that says either true and unrelated or, you know, correlation is not causation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's similar to early on when the were coming out, people started showing these, well, X number of people, you know, within a month after receiving the vaccine developed cancer. And you'd say, well, okay, well, how many people would develop cancer just randomly at this time? Right. And is that different than this vaccine? Because, you know, it, it the, the extreme end of it is like, well, I got the vaccine on a Thursday and on Friday, I got into a car accident. The mm-hmm. vaccine caused the car accident. Well, no, <laughs> that was just bad luck, man. I mean, that's that whole true, true unrelated. So, there's just no data that would support any sort of large-scale correlation between this condition overall and the vaccine. And there's pretty good data that shows that even if you have the condition going into it, the chance of the vaccine making it worse is pretty small and you you recover from it. And, and the reason why they sort of did that study was they said, well, is the risk of not being vaccinated and what would happen with COVID greater than the risk of having this condition and being vaccinated and having a possible exasperation or condition? And the results was it's far more risky not to get vaccinated and get COVID than even when you have this condition. 
and what could happen, which is pretty rare and recoverable. Mm -hmm. So the, the, this connection to me is just down that rabbit hole again of, I got the vaccine on Thursday. I got into a car accident on Friday. The vaccine causes car accidents. Exactly. It's flawed logic. And I, and I took a look at this woman's comment and she even admitted that she had not read the article that I had written and she had not listened to our podcast episodes. And it's interesting that someone would take the impression that they did, that we were somehow anti-vaccine, as this woman is, COVID vaccine specifically, from, and then without even taking a look at any of the stuff that we've actually done, in which case they would probably find that we're probably pretty pro-vaccine uh, here at Fulcrum Strategies and on this podcast. It's interesting to me when people take a lot of these sort of anecdotal stories and blow them out of proportion. Uh, and another example today I heard on the radio was that, excuse me, a doctor had called in and he had said that all of a sudden all of these healthy patients had heart issues after they had the vaccine. Of course, I don't, I don't know this physician. I don't know any of these, these patients that he's talking about, but it's not necessarily caused by the vaccine is what you were just explaining. It's a possibly true, true and unrelated. And there could be looking around to see if there's something else going on in that community that may be causing that. Right, right. Um, there, and it, you know, and I, I, part of my, my master's degree is in statistics and that's why we're so, you know, so focused on this idea of correlation is not causation, you know, that you've got to check creating causation because there are a lot of things that are correlated that have nothing to do with each other. Um, you know, I saw a statistic the other day about a, a pretty dramatic increase over the last two years in um, homicides with a gun. Mm -hmm. Well, can I say that the vaccine caused that? No, of course it didn't. But those two things are highly correlated. This is the period of time when the vaccine went up, you know, when we were when we were doing the vaccine. The other thing I really like about this one is when people are like, oh, well, look at this, the vaccines. I would want to ask somebody who was taking this position to say, when you were a kid, did you have the MMR vaccine? Mm -hmm. Because guess what? The MMR vaccine does have a correlation to this ITB condition. It's mm -hmm. very small and doctors watch for it and they you know, when it happens, they treat it. I mean, it's very, very small. But if you look in the actual literature about this condition, you know, ITP, this has been correlated to the MMR vaccine for a long time. And we still give it because it's still much better to be vaccinated with the MMR vaccine and take the very rare chance you're going to get ITP and have to have it treated than it is to go unvaccinated. Um, but nobody's picking up and down and going, why are we kid giving kids the MMR vaccine? Right. You know, and, and it's, it's only the COVID vaccine. It's interesting you mentioned MMR too, because back when I worked in a, a religious setting, MMR was pointed to because it has the same connection to an abortion that the COVID vaccines do, right. but people don't jump up right. and down over the, the, the connection there right. in part because of how serious, you know, measles, mumps, rubella is right. uh, particularly right. to young children. Um, right. This particular disorder we were talking about, I mentioned 12 in the U.S. There were some other issues in Europe, 23 in the U.K., 5 in Norway, and then 11 in Germany and in Austria. And again, this was only for the two protein vaccines, the AstraZeneca and the, right. the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, one of which of those was not even approved in the U.S., um, right. the AstraZeneca vaccine. So... I want to know now and, and pick your brain on and, and hear some of what your recommendations might be to how physicians can combat this sort of information. And I mean, the, the physician that is going to be not the one that's going to call in and say, I have 30 patients now that all have heart disease because of COVID, but the more mainstream physi physician 
who hears this kind of comment from one of their patients. How how is an what is an appropriate response from a physician to this kind of patient? Well, I will tell you what I like, and this is physicians who I've heard deal with these kinds of issues. And I will tell you that many physicians I talk to will say, you know, with the invention of the internet, it's gotten worse and worse. Mm-hmm. You know that that you know decades ago people used to just I trust my doctor, and now you know, my doctor must be in on it, or he must be on the take or whatever, or drug companies are paying him off or whatever. Um, so the three things that I like when, when physicians are combating this on a personal level, first of all, is explain the science or the data, okay? Now, you've got to explain it at, at whatever level you, that patient can handle, but explain the fact that, you know, there have been 200 million people that have been vaccinated, and we've found 12 occurrences of this. You know, mm-hmm. um, I watched a, a physician one time talking about the chance of something and, you know, statistics sometimes get lost on people. And I watched the a deck of cards and said, OK, and shuffled him, said, all right, here's what I mean by the chance of this. Now, pull out the ace of spades, just randomly pull a card out because it was basically showing them that's the roughly the chance that you have. Mm-hmm. In this case, if you're talking about 12 out of 200 million, that's like pull out the ace of spades. 50 times in a row. Right. So infinitesimally as small of a chance. So explain the science, okay? The second thing, in many cases, I talk about, well, what would happen otherwise? Um, I think I've, in an earlier program, I told you that you know, my wife and I have a child with autism, and, mm-hmm. and after he got diagnosed, you know, we were trying to get information about, you know, do vaccines cause this? Should we, you know, what should we do? Our pediatrician was wonderful. And so he was explaining the science to us. And the next thing he said, you have to understand as a pediatrician, when I was training, I remember the hospital wards of kids dying from diseases that we've eradicated now. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, he said, the, the generation of pediatricians who are being trained now will never see smallpox killing a child. They'll never see what happens with this and this because these vaccines have eradicated that. So, you know, and, and he was saying, so yes, I mean, we always look for for um, possible side effects, et cetera, but please understand that, you know, these are good things that have eradicated a lot of death. In the case of COVID, you could say, look, you know, we've seen what this vaccine can do and how it drops fatality rates. And without it, you know, more than a million people would have died in this country, significantly more. Okay. And then the last thing, and, and this is something that, you know, each physician had to decide, but I sort of like when it becomes personal. I mean, I, you know, I watched, a, you know, an, an emergency room doc who had been dealing with COVID, you know, talk to somebody who was sort of very anti-vax and she was trying to explain the science and everything behind it. And the guy just went have it. And she said, let's put it this way. Every person in my family, including my ch- my kids, are fully vaccinated. I'm a doctor. I know what this disease does. I've researched what's in the vaccine. If do you think that I would have my myself and my my husband and my children vaccinated if I didn't fully believe that it was much better? You know, sort of that put right. your money where your mouth is. And so, you know, uh, to me, those are the three things that that doctors can do with their patients: explain the science, talk mm-hmm. about the alternative, and how it's so much worse. Because they can't tell you that it's absolutely without risk. Nothing in the world is without risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then talk about, but, and I did it. You know, when I weighed the risk versus the benefits, it wasn't even a, you know, a second thought for me. Of course I got vaccinated. 
Do you think that the people, in particular the physicians on the internet that are uh, pushing almost an anti-COVID, well, I don't even say an anti-COVID vaccine agenda, do you think that they're better at, a, at trying to explain their message than your average physician, and that's why this has gained so much traction? Well, uh, um, I think it's a combination of things. First sure. of all, the people that are listening to them are wanting to hear that message. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, you know, they're, they're selling raw meat to carnivores. Okay. That's a pretty easy sale. That's number one. Number two, a lot of these physicians are, that are sort of the anti-vaxxers or whatever that are on the internet, what you don't is a lot of fact or research behind it. You'll make statements like, it's been widely proven that, okay, well, show mm -hmm. me the studies. Okay. Don't, don't tell me it's been widely proven unless you can show me the study. Um, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's understood that, well, no, no, it's not understood. That's a, you're, you're making a statement of fact without that. So there's not a lot of depth behind it. I think, you know, the woman who made the comment, I think even if I, I saw something, she made some comment about it, it's been clearly, you know, identified or something. No, it hasn't. It's better mm -hmm. the opposite. So, um, and they, they aren't bound by, you know, what I would call the, you know, the rules of science or facts or logic where, which can get harder when, you're trying to explain that, well, yes, have there been cases of this condition post-vaccine? Sure there have. Oh, see, clear. Oh, I got to explain how many and that they might be true, true. And, and it's harder to go down the path of right. facts and reason and logic. It's easier to just go, well, the government just bought a lot of a drug that is clearly designed to fix the, you know, all the problems that are going to have it post-vaccine. You know, you're just wildly making statements and not have to back it up. That's easy. Um, and you're, you're giving that message to people who want to hear it. They're looking for it. Mm -hmm. I, I, without really commenting on, on this particular person, I think she found it because I had tagged the article as hashtag endplate on Facebook, which is where mm -hmm. she had started liking, commenting on her stuff. And I'm going to assume that hashtag endplate is not a very common hashtag. It's not trending on Twitter or anything like that. Um, and so I have a kind of a cultural question for you that you may not be able to answer, but we could at least just throw it out there and, and, and mm -hmm. talk about it a little bit, is that why would people now be sending so much time on the internet looking for things like these? Because those studies she linked to were from the NIH, and we'll put them in the show notes, are mm -hmm. real meaty studies. They've got a lot of mm -hmm. scientific, very technical information that is in there that is very difficult to for the average person to understand. It's difficult for me to understand, which is why, you know, I'm not gonna comment on whether or not what what I think the study says. So why do you why do you think that we have gone this far down the rabbit hole? Some people go this far down the rabbit hole to throw everything out there that they find on a particular issue or that they're even interested in that particular issue. Yeah, I'll give you what my theory is on sure. it. And it's it's really sad. Um and we talked about before that, you know, this issue, whether it's, you know, it's just the pandemic in general, the, the vaccine, definitely. And there are others. I mean, I, I see people get as absolutely as rabid about anti-electric vehicles, mm -hmm. you know, and they're yep. trying to show these studies that show that, oh, they're actually worse for the planet because of the carbon footprint created by making the battery. Or, you know, I mean, um, is these things have become so politicized and our politics have become so caustic and divisive. You know, it's not, it's not anymore, you know, you're right. I'm 
you know, I'm right, you're wrong, or I disagree with your policy, and I think you're going the wrong direction. It's your evil. You're mm -hmm. trying to do harm to me. You know, you, you, you know, the right is trying to completely imprison us and make us all have chips in our arms from vaccine and take away all our guns. And, I, and then the flip side is, you know, the left looks and says, oh, well, you know, the other side is trying to do this and they're really trying to do, you know. Yeah. And, and it's gotten so emotional that some people who, for whatever reason, feel either so attacked or you know, so emotional about this, have almost created a job out of looking for these things to prove what they believe, which is someone else is inherently evil and trying to kill and hurt me. And those are like me. And, and again, it, it's both sides are, are guilty of mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's sad. It really is because the truth is I believe that you know, people on the right really want people to die of a disease. And I don't believe that people on the left really want to take all the money from all the people on the right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think at their core, the vast majority and not the fringe really want us all to be better and, and improve. And we may differ on how to get there, but I just don't think that at the core, the vast majority of the country really wishes that much ill on somebody else. But there are people who believe that mm -hmm. and their belief runs away with them. And I think it's really sad. I would agree with you. It absolutely is is sad, and and it speaks to a depressing state of our country right now. And I and I will yeah. say I do think too that in this regard, you have a lot of people who that take these radical positions. One have a way too much time on their hands, and I think the people mm. that are more in the center are the people that are doing other things with their lives and not worrying about. Right. Certain fringe things. I mean, I don't want to say trust necessarily trusting in the system, but in a certain sense, you know, they walk around with their quotidian faith, their basic understanding of mm -hmm. the world that everything will generally be okay. You know, regardless of who the president is, regardless of mm -hmm. what's going on in Eastern Europe or what sort of the vaccine we've got out right now, generally the world is going to end up okay. And I think those are the people that you find more in the center that don't have time to read that far down the rabbit hole as some of these other people on both the right and the, on the, right. and the left. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I think the other thing is, and this is sort of a sign of the times, I, I heard, I forget what it was, I heard somebody talk about, you know, there have always been crazy people. They just never had a place, a platform to make their voice heard like yeah. they do with the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. You know, I mean, I, I sort of look back and I, you know, I, whether it's, you know, that, that crazy uncle that used to come to Thanksgiving and say, oh, well, you know, you know what they're doing, you know, that where's the tinfoil mm -hmm. hat? Those people have always been there. They just have never had a typewriter and a platform to be able to get their views out in the world or an audience that would go, yeah, you're right. You know, um, mm -hmm. we just sort of ignored him when he came over for Thanksgiving. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> It, so well, I think that's part of it too, is the platform. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier this year with the, the, your your article on on the opposition virus, and I'll make sure we link that in the show notes again for people to check that out because I think that that hits the nail on the head on where we are right now uh, politically. And then also what we discussed a few weeks ago um, from another um, healthcare analyst commentary that the health politics, and in particular healthcare and politics, is a is increasingly a fact free zone, um, and people mm -hmm. just either not caring or um, not or in, in a sense caring too much to bother to look into some of these issues uh, that affect right. healthcare in, in our political in our political sphere. 
Yep. Well, we'll make sure we have uh, this stuff linked for you in the show notes uh, for the Flight Landing Podcast. Uh, I found out this week you can't find, you can't click on the links when you're on our platform. So if you want to click on the links, go to flatlining.net and click on this episode, and you can find all the articles that we've mentioned in this segment in the program. One thing we've noticed from listeners of the Flatlining Podcast is that not all of you have signed up for our weekly e-newsletter. You can do so now at flatlining.net. Each week, we share some of the most interesting and relevant healthcare news-related items we find and how they might affect you, your practice, or your patients. It also includes a weekly column from me. Sign up now for the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. quote Monty Python, I want to turn to something completely different now and talk a little bit about uh, tech trends in healthcare. And tech's something that interests me because I, you know, I like having some of the newest and the latest gadgets. And, and obviously, sometimes my budget constrains me from having the newest and latest gadgets. But there's been a lot of spending on tech in healthcare, uh, particularly in IT and in particularly in um, different developmental things, uh, service-based things for both hospitals and, and physician groups. And I know we've talked before, Ron, about the vast expansion of telemedicine that we saw during uh, the COVID pandemic and the pros and cons of that. That one, people who wouldn't normally have access to a doctor because of where they live, uh, the distance it may cost or the distance may, it may take to get there, the cost of seeing a provider. Uh, it has greatly expanded the ability for people to see doctors. On the flip side, you have an instance where you may have people beginning to rely on telehealth almost as a, uh, I don't want to say pill mill, but you know, as someone that can write a prescription whenever they need a prescription. So with that in mind, I want to take a look at some of the other things that have been um, trending in healthcare lately. And one of them is the a huge amount of spending on online patient charts, such as uh, Epic MyChart or Athena and some of these other ones. And I guess I want to ask, is this money well spent for both patients and providers? Well, first of all, kudos on the Monty Python reference. You know, <laughs> folding one of those in is always, always you get 10 extra points from me on that. I'm a huge Monty Python fan. But um, it's possible that it's money well spent. Um one of the things that's been a huge problem for healthcare for a long time is it's really lagging in the tech area, you know, and, and I, um, example I use is, you know, it's amazing to me that when I was traveling abroad, I could take my ATM card and put it in anywhere and get money and mm -hmm. they would do the currency, you know, exchange right Well, you know, I mean, I, I can do online banking and, do almost anything I want to. The banking industry realized tech was have you know had to be part of it. Had to take a, a right. customer experience um, and make it um, you know what the new consumer wants. The digital natives, if you will. I don't remember the last time I went in and well, yeah. The only time I've ever gone into a bank lately is and gone to a teller's. I needed something notarized, which you can't do electronically. Mm -hmm. So and for me, it's because I've needed quarters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so healthcare has been a little bit lagging in that, and I think it's starting to pick up the pace. 
I think one of the things that happened with COVID was we were forced into a more tech environment with telehealth being, you know, um, required. And A, we found out, yes, we can do it. And B, mm -hmm. that the customer likes it, um, especially yeah. the new digital natives. So it, it may be money well spent if it truly gets some economies of scale and efficiencies into the system. And thinking specifically about some of the patient charts, like like Epic My Charter or Athena, I would, personally I would say at least now. Granted, this we're entering into monopoly territory here, almost with what I've seen from Epic, but it, it's been incredibly convenient for me to visit St. Josie St. Joseph Mercy Health Center in Ann Arbor. But then when I have an issue and, you know, I'm traveling and I'm in, you know, Virginia, I go to the Virginia hospital system, which also uses Epic MyChart, that they're able to pull that information very quickly and see what my other health records have been at my, you know, my main healthcare provider in, in Ann Arbor at Ypsilanti. Right. To me, that's a convenient thing. Are there cons to that sort of uh, technology by having online patient charts? Well, so there's a couple of things to be careful. First of all, you know, obviously security, you yes. know, making sure that people aren't getting access to your data. Well, we have data security issues across everything, banking. I mean, you talk about that, you've got to make sure that they can't get at my, and, and their bitches. And so that's going to be an ongoing battle. So security is a big issue. Um, making sure that the people viewing it are really should be viewing it, that, you know, that they're your physicians or that they're, you know, people aren't data mining that for other things other than, you know, identity theft, um, you know, that's a, that's a big issue. But if you think about where this could go, and it's really the technology's not that bad. And then there's one other thing at the end I'll talk about is a, a concern, but a way to deal with it. Imagine if you will, that not only are you able to, you know, somebody's able to pull your records, but it wouldn't matter what system you were in or what you used or where you were, you know, so you're, in a car accident in New Mexico mm -hmm. and you're unconscious and they roll in there and they know who you are from your ID, et cetera, and they can get into a system and say, oh, by the way, let's be careful. This individual's a brittle diabetic and he's on this drug or that drug, you know, while you're unconscious. And they could, oh, I don't know, see all of your past imaging studies that have been done or, you know, read all the notes from your previous doctor. Those are things that could be incredibly valuable in all sorts of settings mm -hmm. um, and get rid of an awful lot of unnecessary duplicative medicine that are done just to be sure. You know, we're not sure what's going on here. We'll then order this test, that test, this test. Um, if they could pull up those images and say, hey, you know, this guy just had a CT scan last week for something. We don't have to redo it. We can see it right here. Mm -hmm. All that being digital, you know, could be incredibly beneficial and valuable. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies that talk about, you know, um, drug interaction and, and patient safety around things that, you know, shouldn't happen, but they didn't know. They didn't know you were on this other drug and it has a negative um, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, recommendation with this drug they're going to give you. Those things are going to be incredibly valuable, drive down cost and improve quality. Now, the last thing, and you even mentioned it, is we got to be careful that it just doesn't create... Um, and any sort of restricted restraint of trade that drives up price. If we end up with one EMR and one company, and then they can say, well, now we're the only ones, you got to pay extra for it. But that can be handled through the Federal Trade Commission. And sure. The laws that are on the books for monopoly behavior right now. So, um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot here that would be very good. 
And, and I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not attempting to accuse uh, Epic as a as a monopoly. No. I. But from what I've read from Becker's Hospital and others, they are the dominant um, mm-hmm. online patient records thing right now. Now, when you talk about kind of the universal one, you know, we, you know, doesn't matter where it happens. You know, someone is able to find your records and get, so they can give you the best care. Do you think that that would be better run by the federal government or better run by a nonprofit affiliated with the federal government or run by a private company? Well, I actually don't think it has to be a universal system. Okay. I just think you've got to have, and I think this may be federal law that would, would necessitate it. You've got to have universal connectivity and a universal language. So in other words, you know, the same thing with the banks. There's not one system that, that runs the online banking. Mm-hmm. But they all are able to connect with each other because they're using sort of the same language, if you will. Right. You know, all you've got to do is say, all right, if you're going to be an EMR or some sort of an online portal or medical record, you have to have your file structure in a certain format, et cetera, so that when it's appropriate, that data can be cross-transmitted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so when you're in a hospital in New Mexico that's not affiliated with the hospital system you're with, that they can, in essence, go, all right, give me that data, and it's going to come over in a format that my system can then read. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's helpful to understand in this, and people, you know, talk about sort of possession of things, from day one back to paper charts, the actual chart is the possession of the patient. Mm-hmm. You're giving the the you know your healthcare practitioner the right to keep a copy, but that chart is yours, and so. When you're in that hospital, you can have the permission or a loved one can say, yes, I give permission to see Matthew's chart. Mm-hmm. The person who has it electronically stored somewhere can't legally stop that because it's not theirs. You own it. You know, you're letting them keep mm-hmm. a copy of it. Um, so it, it doesn't have to be one EMR. It means they all have to talk to each other. Do you think that that that, that patient rights issue there of, of you owning your own chart, do you think that's a reason why we've seen a lot of um, um, hospitals, medical centers really push patients to sign up for the chart as soon as either right after their visit or when they're signing up for, the, you know, making an appointment for their visit? Well, so I, I think part of it's that, but I think the, a bigger part of it is one of the things that the delivery system has realized with these my charts or my portals or things like mm-hmm. that is it's also incredibly cost effective for them. You know, right. I've seen hospitals who have gotten more people onto their electronic charts or their portals or whatever have a significant reduction in the amount of telephone operators they have to have to answer these questions. Because now, I'll give you a perfect example. I went to my doctor the other day and I had seen a specialist for something else, you know, since between the last time I'd seen my doctor. Thought, oh well, I should bring you know the notes and the and the results from that specialist. Well, I don't have to call that specialist and have them call me back or have them fax something over and all these telephone calls that involve mm-hmm. people. I went online, I printed out my stuff, and I took it to my doctor. Said, hey, by the way, I saw this ENT. Here's what he did. Mm-hmm. Now that's much more efficient Absolutely. than all this calls back and forth. So these hospitals have realized that the and it's a patient satisfier. Because I would have gotten really frustrated if I'd have had to call the ENT. Oh, well, Mr. Hargan, can you hold while we get? No, I don't want to hold. I want it now. Right. Instead, yep. I could click, click, print, print. I'm done. Well, I will say from a, a comment from what we do every day at Fulcrum Strategies, it almost seems like there needs to be a law like that with the uh, the payers. 
<laughs> as we're yeah. trying to get information from them, or just as providers try to get information from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of room for uh, people, for, for different companies, especially big tech companies that have brand name, uh, brand names that are associated with customer satisfaction or innovation, such as Walmart, uh, Amazon.com. Um, this person over at Becker's uh, Hospital Review also throws in Optum and CVS Health. And she mentions that there's a possibility for these companies to get into Medicare Advantage. How do you think we could see Amazon or Walmart or CVS Health or Optum getting into Medicare Advantage? And how do you think that that would, that would disrupt uh, the way we do healthcare currently? Well, so there's a couple of things about Medicare Advantage that lend itself well to the retail environment. It's a retail sale. You sell them one at a time. You're not mm -hmm. selling like the, the normal employer group insurance. You're selling the employer group. They're making a decision for all their employees to buy Blue Cross or Aetna or United or whatever. Okay. And the funding mechanisms around those large groups create some complexity. Now, Medicare Advantage, you're selling to Mr. S Mr. Smith and his wife. It's a retail sale. Well, these guys know retail sale. Mm -hmm. They also have retail name recognition. They have retail distribution channels. So think about Walmart. Mm -hmm. Well, what if there was a little booth, like a lot of these Walmarts have a bank. What if there was a little booth that said, buy your Medicare Advantage here? Mm -hmm. They've already got a distribution chain. And they've got people who you know know them, they come in every day, et cetera. So it, it lends itself well to that retail sale. The funding mechanism is straightforward and easy. It's an individual, you know, the mm -hmm. government pays you their portion. And the, if, they, if the person has money that they owe, you bill them on a regular basis. Um, they can give you a credit card for that monthly fee that, oh, well, they're really good at that. So mm -hmm. it lends itself to that sort of retail environment. And it could be incredibly disruptive because Medicare Advantage is very profitable for the mainline insurance companies. These others, Amazon, Walmart, CVS, et cetera, also don't have some of the, you know, the negative reputation that comes with just you're an insurance company. They're, they're you know, the right. insurance company's approval ratings are about where the Senate is. You mm -hmm. know, they're, they're about that bad. Um, the other thing that keep in mind with all this, whether it's the, you know, the e-charts or, you know, Amazon getting into Medicare Advantage or the stuff that's happening with the, you know, these pharmacies like, you know, what the Dallas Mavericks owner is doing. It's hard for some people to understand just how big healthcare is and how from a private entity company perspective, how small a piece of pie you have to bite off to have a huge market. So let's put it this way. Think about the US auto industry, okay? Massive industry. You know, I mean we've been told that it's too big to fail, that too much of the economy requires on it. Mm -hmm. The car companies, okay? In order to have the exact same sort of market revenue as the entire auto industry, all you have to do is peel off two and a half percent of healthcare. <laughs> two and a half percent of what we spend on healthcare is how much the entire auto industry produces in revenue. Wow. That's how big it is. So when you're dealing with a four trillion dollar a year market, you need you if you get breadcrumbs. It's more than what you are in almost anything else. Mm -hmm. So when you see these companies going, let's dive into healthcare because they realize I don't have to get a 20% market penetration. If I just scratch the surface, I'm wealthy beyond my dreams. And that's why so much money's getting thrown into it.
Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I, not necessarily a tech brand, but Kroger, the the large grocery brand. I, I think they're second largest in the U.S. behind Walmart for groceries. Yeah. And I've seen yeah. ads at my local Kroger for this, uh, you know, put up in different places around the store that they are now selling. I don't, well, they're not selling the plan. The plan's being sold by Priority Health, which is uh, the insurance company for Spectrum Hospital in Grand Rapids uh, here in Michigan. But they're selling a Medicare Advantage plan in partnership with Kroger that gives you a one-year membership of their Kroger Plus, which gets you, I guess, I think, home delivery for groceries for free, uh, as well as a $300 year over-the-counter allowance to use at Kroger for, quote, everyday drugstore items, including food and produce for some members. Mm -hmm. So this, I think this is a good example where we talk about retail can get into this and provide ways uh, for people to expand what they're, they're health, you know, their Medicare Advantage program might offer. Mm -hmm. In this particular instance, you sign up for this particular one from Priority Health, you get all these benefits at Kroger. And you mm -hmm. could say to people, well, if you shop at Kroger regularly, and you don't mind getting all your prescriptions at Kroger, this is a pretty good deal for you. Do you th I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm thinking I mean, when we talk about Amazon and Walmart and CVS and these others, that this is, and this is an opportunity for them to go in that direction as well, doing similar incentives. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine Amazon selling Medicare Advantage and saying for all of one of our members, get Amazon Prime for free? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, th there's a lot of tie-ins that they can do um, and, and make it, you know, suddenly very advantageous for somebody to say, oh, well, gosh, yeah, I already get all my, you know, all my toilet paper from Amazon. I don't have to pay for Amazon Prime and I'll get a free Medicare Advantage plan that offers me this extra benefits. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of that that's going to go on. We talked a little bit uh, briefly about uh, cybersecurity and hospitals and healthcare CEOs have been spending more and more money on that. We've seen a number of ransomware attacks, particularly mm -hmm. against hospitals in recent years. Um, and I imagine this is going to be a growing issue for anyone in the healthcare industry. Oh, absolutely. Because healthcare delivery... Um, lends itself so well for a ransomware attack because mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing where you can't have your system shut down even for a day because, um, you know, A, you're doing care delivery or the amount of revenue hit that happens for every day. And so somebody that comes in, grabs your, you know, the security of your system and says, hey, send me, you know, $30,000, $300,000 or else I'm shutting you down tomorrow. Right. And, and to be honest with you, the, the, the smart play for the delivery is to just send it, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. because it, it's too expensive not to, and you know, you're not going to catch them. Um, so we're going to see a lot more of that. And, and then it's going to, you know, there's this ever growing industry of people trying to prevent that. It, and almost always, it seems for these particular types of, of cybersecurity attacks, they're coming from overseas. I, mm -hmm. I think almost always from Russia or China. Do you think that there's going to be, do you think, I mean, other than the legislation we already have, do you think legislation is necessary to kind of combat this particular thing? What, what sort of role should the federal government have in preventing some of these cybersecurity attacks? Well, to me, the, the whole legislation thing is, you know, it's difficult because you can't, you know, you can't imprison somebody who's in another country. Right. Um, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night more than the thought of a nuclear exchange is state-sponsored 
mm-hmm. terrorism like that. I mean, yeah. you know, we we have grown comfortable with this idea that, you know, we are going and it's successful that we're you know we're going to get at bad actors and let's talk about Putin as just an example through mm-hmm. sanctions. Well, sanctions are doing economic damage to another country basically, or not purchasing goods and services from them. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if a state sponsor, let's say Putin in this example, says, fine, I'm going to do a massive, would normally be a ransomware, and I'm going to go out and in a coordinated effort, and I'm going to take 50 of your largest hospital systems, and I'm going to shut them down all at the same time, mm-hmm. or all of the hospital systems in New York City. And my ransom is not, I need 30,000 in Bitcoin, it's I need these sanctions lifted control right. hospitals back that sort of state sponsor or the electrical grid or the you know you yep. pick what it is yeah that's what scares me more than a nuclear exchange because it's potentially easier to do and you know in some ways potentially more crippling mm-hmm. so i i think we'll definitely be seeing more money spent in that direction mm-hmm. over the over the next few yeah. years defense protection it- Finally, I want to turn to the one that probably interests people the most, and that's artificial intelligence. And some people, I think, when they hear this, think of robots doing surgeries. And I don't know if we'll ever get to that point. But I think what we may see more of, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is um, artificial intelligence making sort of diagnoses or reading, you know, radiology imaging, stuff like that. What do you think about that particular trend uh, in healthcare? Um, I actually think that artificial intelligence in healthcare is a very good thing. Okay. Um, it's like a lot of things. If used well in the right environment, um, you know, there's what what artificial te- intelligence used well can do is start to get rid of human variation and human error. Simple, well-meaning human error. You know, having computers check drug interactions and have a warning flag. Doctor, you know you're prescribing something that has a negative interaction with this other drug. Oh, yeah, you know, thank you. Or looking at the vast amount of data that comes through with some of the imaging that happens right now, whether it's, you know, MRI, CT, even, you know, breast imaging, and and trying to sift through that and saying, you should probably look at the following three slides or that area of breast. I think there's something abnormal mm-hmm. that can help do those things. Even diagnosis pathways. You know, this looks like this. Now, there always has to be, I think, a human component verifying that or saying, yes, I agree or no, you're wrong. Because there are examples of, you know, computers and artificial intelligence getting things wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, I think it's a very good thing and it can prove quality and and hopefully start to reduce the amount of, you know, well-meaning just human error. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, uh, there's a, there's a reason why, um, and you, I'm sure we've all heard it. You're sitting on an airplane waiting for it to take off and they're turning, the pilots are turning on all the sensors and everything. And you hear from the cockpit, pull up, pull up, pull mm-hmm. up. Well, that's because he turned on the, you know, part of the sensors that tell him what altitude he's at and the pilot's saying, you're, you're too low. Well, of course I'm too low. I haven't taken off yet, mm-hmm. but that's another way that some computer is saying, now it doesn't change the trajectory of the plane the pilot still pulls up but it's in case the pilot's not paying attention or it's foggy or whatever and the computer recognizes that we're too low it's a it's an aid to -hmm. help him um same thing with you know with artificial intelligent healthcare it can be an aid to make it even better 
Right. And I think that, I mean, we're not going to see, you know, Detroit become human turned into a reality or anything like that. But I think right, what right. we're going to see is, is physicians working alongside particularly mm-hmm. computers with artificial intelligence, exactly what you're talking about, that can point to certain things and, and then we can look more closely. It, but not only that, it can get as simple as physicians, you know, an independent physician office setting up a chat bot on their website that can take appointments for them. And then that way they can have a, you know, a digital appointment calendar that way. That's as simple as, you know, talking to the little bot and telling them what time. And then the person gets a list of the things that are available and you click on it and then you're done. I mean, that's, that's as simple as it has to be. It doesn't have to be these big complex, you know, robotic surgeries or or anything like that. Although I do want to mention one, and I think I mentioned it in the final thought, uh, probably about a month ago, that uh, Trinity Health and Pontiac has a little robot that will deliver supplies between the floors and it has a little screen mm-hmm. and the nurses can say you need to send this thing to this floor or it can go pick up meals for patients and it'll go down to the cafeteria and load the meal on it brings it back up delivers it right to the patient and it's something that just saves time for things that you know a nurse would normally have to go run down another floor and it, they don't have to do that anymore so there's a lot of interesting things that this could go and it doesn't have to be all the weird sci-fi things of, you know, robots right. are going to take over or anything like that. Well, and, and I mean, throughout history, there have been, you know, the Industrial Revolution was going to get rid of all artisans and mankind was going to go away. And the Computer Revolution, and I mean, you know, at, at one point uh, there were comments when, you know, when word processors were first coming out that, you know, the, the creation of the word processor was going to eliminate the job of secretary or administrative assistant. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. You know, right. now that, that that administrative assistant is, u- is using, you know, computers rather than electronic typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's been these constant evolutions where, oh, well, that's going to be the death of everybody. Now that there's, yep. you know, computers, there's no going to nobody's going to be working anymore. And it never has. And I know people in the radio community, especially that are always talking about that the next big thing is going to be the end of radio. But radio has survived. Uh, television, it survived streaming, it survived Sirius XM, and it's still around. And, you know, right. in part because it's in every car that's ever made. You know, so right. there, you know, some of these things that we, you know, people are a little bit doom and gloom about, I don't, you know, I think you're exactly right. It's never going to come to fruition in the way that, that people imagine. Well, we'll have uh, these 10 Observation Emerging Health IT Trends article posted in the show notes uh, at flatlining.net. You're going to have to head over there if you want to click on the link, uh, but you can also find it at uh, Becker's Hospital Review website. Ron, that's about all the time we have for today. So thanks for uh, coming on the Flatlining Podcast and sharing your analysis. Oh, thank you for the discussion, as always. to stay with tech for our final thought today and i want to know what do you think about prescribing a video game to treat symptoms of adhd close watchers of the fda may recall that in june of 2020 
the agency allowed a company to market their video game as treatment for ADHD. The game is called Endeavor RX, and it's a non-drug option for children ages 8 to 12 years old, and it helps train their minds to keep their focus on particular things or puzzles in the game, and it's something that, it's something that people with ADHD normally struggle with. Now, the company that makes the game, Aculy, is hoping that it can help people with symptoms of long COVID. As we discussed on the podcast a few weeks back, long COVID could be a serious problem for the U.S. workforce. People with ongoing problems with their heart or respiratory systems, or in this case, suffering from cognitive decline because of the virus. They've got some data to back up their claims for its ADH treatment, otherwise the FDA wouldn't have looked at it. Uh, In clinical trials with more than 600 children, the game facilitates general improvement in attention, and it mitigates other ADHD symptoms. Ackley is also working on games for adults with depression, and early studies have shown that their platform can help people with lupus. I want to hear from you. What do you think about prescribing a video game, especially for children that may have uh, struggle with ADHD? Let me know what you think in the comments at flatlining.net or on this program, or send us an email, flatlining at substack.com, or send me a tweet at Radio Handler. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Art Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for my weekly e-newsletter, The Friday Pulse Check, at flatlining.net and have healthcare headlines delivered to your email inbox every Friday morning. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.